0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A Colorado Springs citizen commission examines policing, from communication and racial bias to crisis response and use of force. Also, 71 people died in Colorado prisons last year. That's twice as many as the year before. Critics say the state is underutilizing a law designed to lower in custody deaths plus remembering anti-war and civil rights activist Rennie Davis from Birth It, one of the Chicago Seven. Then, a Colorado native brings her love of jazz to Pixar's new movie, Soul.
1: To be able to be a part of such a transformational platform for young people, our young black girls, I think this is really groundbreaking and it's right in time with where we are in this culture.
0: The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across
2: our state. I'm from Denver,
3: Aurora
4: Glenwood Springs,
2: Ranch and Boulder. Ranch.
0: with your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Devon Bailey's death in Colorado Springs sparked unrest, protests, and calls for police reform. The young black man was shot and killed by police officers in 2019. A grand jury ultimately decided not to indict the officers, but public outcry in this case, along with the National Black Lives Matter movement, spurred the city of Colorado Springs to form a citizen commission to examine policing and transparency. The Law Enforcement and Accountability Commission also known as Letac, is preparing for its second town hall meeting. J.J. Frazier is the commission's chairperson. She has retired from a 40-year career in education. She's also a former business owner and an active volunteer for a number of civic organizations in the Pikes Peak region. J.J., thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about how this commission came into being. What do you know about how Devon Bailey's case and other police killings influenced the creation of this Police Transparency and Accountability Commission in Colorado Springs? I think
3: that the citizens of Colorado Springs, they made their voices heard. They um, basically contacted the leadership in our community and demanded that something be done to um, look into the Devon Bailey case and to um, more or less um, um, form a commission uh, to see about bridging the communication gap between the Colorado Springs Police Department and our different communities. So as a result, the city council uh, selected out of 800 candidates, They selected 13 citizens to represent each district in our community to uh, look into um, these matters, dealing with law enforcement um, um, and seeing about creating a transparent uh, way of us communicating together and getting information out to our communities.
0: You're the current chair of that commission that came out of this in this hope for bridging communication. Why is this issue of personal importance to you?
3: Every day we're hearing or seeing on social media, on television, about African American males being uh, killed by law enforcement. What drove me to join or to even apply? for uh, this commission was at the heat of the moment, it was during the Breonna Taylor, um, George Floyd, Devon Bailey, Elijah McClain, all of these cases surfaced. And I, I just could no longer sit by and not do anything. I have a son, I have grandsons and fear. We should not fear the police, we should trust them and the trust factor was diminishing uh, significantly. So it hit home when I saw all of these cases and it goes on and on. And what is the common denominator? They're all black and they've all been killed by law enforcement. So something needed to be done. And um, I'm hoping that my involvement and participation on the LEtech will assist in bridging the gaps.
0: And we should say this is not a paid position, so you are dedicating a lot of time to this um, because it is important.
3: Absolutely. Uh, We receive calls. We receive emails, letters from our citizens. And um, this is why we have put in place town hall meetings. We have one coming up on Saturday, February 13th from 10 a.m. to 12 noon, whereas our citizens will be able to call in and voice their concerns, their opinions about policing and public safety in our community. The LEETAC commission members will listen and if there is follow-up needed, uh, the appropriate representative from CSPD will uh, contact that particular citizen. And let's talk a little bit about the commission members that
0: people will be speaking to. Those will be listening. They come from diverse backgrounds and perspectives on policing. There's the widow of a slain police officer as well as a former police chief. You also have activists, former educators, community leaders who are racially diverse. Do you feel the commission represents a good cross-section of Colorado Springs, or are there any voices missing?
3: No. In fact, one in particular, uh, one of our commission members um, who is an alternate, has um, a very good relationship so far with the uh, Colorado Springs Police Department in dealing with her mentally challenged uh, family member. And that's one of the topics that we will be discussing later on in uh, March, but with crisis response. So we have people, we have uh um, people who have had interactions with CSPD, whether positive or negative or in between, but they're all represented on our commission. And we're really, really fortunate to uh, that the city council selected each one of us. It Tell- was a hard, grueling process for them.
0: With so many applications to sort through, I imagine. Tell us more about what this group is supposed to do
3: What we're supposed to do is to improve communications and interactions between law enforcement and our communities. Um, Most recently we held uh, our listening and learning session on communications. We asked questions like how could CSPD's approach to communication with the community more effectively build and maintain trust between law enforcement and citizens. We asked what improvements like the website, um, uh, online face-to-face communications um, could help to increase transparency with the Colorado Springs Police Department. They've also um, initiated a data hub, which now citizens can go to their website and find information about uh, law enforcement uh, issues or matters or cases that uh, is becoming pretty popular in our community. There's still some, they're still tweaking it um, because people are looking for information that's not readily available, but it's going to be helpful uh, in trying to um, bridge that communication gap.
0: And some of these communication solutions, they sound relatively straightforward. And communication is one of the themes that this commission is structuring its first year of work around. You're also looking at racial bias, crisis response, and use of force. How are you tackling those issues?
3: Racial bias is coming up at our next meeting on Tuesday, February 16th. And at that time, we will have the Colorado Springs Police Department present to us any information or data they have that deals with racial bias. The second half of that first meeting on February 16th will receive calls or virtually will receive um, response from our citizens regarding racial bias, any concerns or opinions they have related to that topic. Then on the last leg of it, we will come back on March 1st as a commission and we will uh, 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 ask questions, additional questions and research, and then talk to members of our commission who have experience or um, um, uh, information or research about racial bias. So we're looking forward to that one. We're hoping that our citizens will participate in our upcoming town hall, and we're hoping that they'll participate in the citizens' comments portions of the meeting.
0: Your group, it does have limitations. It's an advisory commission, not an auditor or an independent oversight commission. Some critics say that LETAC doesn't have teeth to make real change if all this, if all it can do is offer guidance or advice to city council. What do you say to people when they tell you that they're tired of just discussing racial injustice in policing?
3: What I say to them as I hear them, but I can assure them that we have a good, skillful, experienced team working on their behalf, but we need their help. We need their input. And if they don't provide us the input, we can't do our work. So I encourage our citizens to work with us, help us. And yes, We will make recommendations to city council. So it will be um, at the end of this process up to city council to assist with making changes in our community. We recently had Colorado
0: Springs Mayor John Southers on the program. And when we asked him what role he thinks a citizen group can and should play when it comes to police oversight, he said it should be strictly advisory.
4: They can Uh, look into the processes and procedures, the uh, police department, the budget, all that sort of thing, and make recommendations to the uh, city council, to the mayor. Uh, But um, you don't turn police oversight uh, over to uh, unelected uh, citizens with no accountability to the citizenry. That, in my opinion, is a political disaster.
0: What do you think about the mayor's opinion of the role of citizen oversight of the police? And do you think that there will be accountability for law enforcement if the city council doesn't take the advice of this group?
3: Well, I have a question. So is the mayor saying that you have to be an elected representative to be able to make change? He said that would be a political disaster. Is this about politics? And this is about people's lives and their comfort in their in the community that they live in. So I feel because we're not elected that we have a little bit more leverage in the recommendations that we present to city council. And when you do present these recommendations, tell me about what makes you
0: hopeful that city council will take the
3: recommendations. Well, we will have a new city council, which is <laughs> um, um, uh, which is going to be interesting. But I really and truly believe that we're all very dedicated and committed to our mission and our purpose. And I think that the city council, whether it be the one that is seated now or the newly elected city council, I feel that they'll do the right thing. They live here. They know the communities. And I know they'll do the right things.
0: The Colorado Springs Police Department recently announced they hired an independent firm to review their use of force. The group is planning to release their findings this fall. Many in the communities have been calling for more transparency around use of force since Devon Bailey was killed in 2019. Does this announcement do enough to build trust with the community?
3: The jury's still out on that one. That's part of the data hub Um information I was talking about that CSPD has um, initiated. Yes, the jury's still out. I'm anxious to see what this independent um, firm is going to uh, divulge or uh, find out, but I really can't even speak on it. I'd like to see just what it is that they intend to accomplish. We also have use of force as one of the topics that we'll be uh, um, researching as well, uh, April 19th.
0: And then circling back to this next town hall that is coming up on Saturday, February 13th. It's online, of course, because of the pandemic. How can people participate and what can they expect if they join? We've got about a minute
3: left. Okay, um, I'll make this quick. Yes, Saturday, February 13th, 10 to noon. Um, uh, if people would like to access via telephone, please dial 720-617-3426, access code 388-724-781-POUND. Or if uh, you would like to participate virtually, please log into or join uh, via Microsoft Teams.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us, JJ.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Avery.
0: J.J. Frazier is chair of the Law Enforcement and Accountability Commission in Colorado Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 71 people died in Colorado prisons last year. That's almost double the year before. Prisons have been hard hit by the pandemic. Colorado also has a law that's designed to lower the number of in-custody deaths, but critics say that it's not being used fully. CPR's Allison Sherry is covering this issue and joins me now. Hi, Allison. Hi, Avery. Allison, let's start with that big fatality number.
2: Given the pandemic,
0: did it surprise you?
2: Well, um... Not really. You know, there have been massive outbreaks in a handful of Colorado's prisons since the start of the pandemic with more than 8,000 people infected with COVID-19. So considering that, these numbers could certainly be higher. And just to clarify, these are all deaths. These are not just COVID-19 deaths. They include suicide and even homicide, everything. Colorado law actually requires the prison system to consider releasing its most medically
0: vulnerable inmates early. That's different from the executive order last year encouraging DOC to let some people out early because of the pandemic. So tell us about that law for the medically vulnerable inmates.
2: Yeah, there is a tool called Special Needs Parole, and it's been on the books for years, since way before COVID-19. And it requires the Department of Corrections to evaluate inmates who are over 55, or have chronic, costly, and yes, the word costly is in the statute, medical conditions. Or if the inmate is incapacitated. So there are a few different buckets there. If an inmate falls into one of those buckets, he or she's supposed to be considered for early parole eligibility. Ultimately, it's the parole board who decides whether someone would be let out early under this special circumstance. So is the thinking that some of last year's increase in in in-custody deaths could have been prevented if more people were given special needs parole? You know, without knowing everybody's medical information of who died, um, it's unclear, but definitely advocates are making that connection. They're saying because the Department of Corrections is underutilizing this statute that requires them to evaluate people and their medical vulnerabilities, people are needlessly dying in prison. What does the DOC say about it? DOC did not grant an interview for this story, but they told me in an emailed statement that they evaluated... Every inmate last year at every prison who was over 55 for special needs parole. They said, additionally, some people applied for it on their own, but that they didn't necessarily meet the criteria. What we do know is that not that many people were granted special needs parole. When you say not that many, what were the actual numbers? Like in 2019, out of 19,000 inmates, the parole board granted three special needs parole releases, and that was out of 53 considerations. In 2020, with the pandemic raging, they considered 118 releases, and they released 16 people. Wow, just 16? Yeah, and that's excluding the releases that were granted under an executive order signed by Polis that encouraged the DOC to release some people earlier. This is what critics are calling the underutilization of the program. They say that DOC is not looking hard enough at the people with the circumstances that could lend themselves to consideration for this. Um, And I do need to make clear that the parole board looks at risk to public safety for these releases just like they do with every parole candidate. How much discretion does DOC have with these special needs releases? Well, there are health criteria an inmate has to meet, like I talked about, and there are some rules that like if a person committed a felony one crime, like murder, the crime must have happened before 1990 and the person must have served 20 years. So there, are, there is some discretion. There are some rules, but there's some discretion that they have. So is it subjective? Well, I don't think the law is intended to be as subjective um, as it is, but it's not written very clearly, and I think it leaves a lot for interpretation. You know, lawyers and family members I've talked to apply have applied for special needs parole, and they, they, they think they qualify if they read the statute, and then they get turned down. Have you met anyone in that situation? Yes. Um, I met a mom. Her name is Kim White. She lives in Colorado Springs. Her son, Dustin Logan, was convicted... Um, In a string of armed robberies in 2017, Um, her son has uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an autoimmune disease, and he also has an IQ of 69. Um, A children's hospital assessment uh, in his records show that his living skills are comparable to an eight-year-old. He contracted COVID last spring, kind of early, and he had severe symptoms, but since then he's actually developed a tremor that's making him so sick he can't get out of bed some days.
0: So his mother has presumably read the statute
2: and feels like he qualifies. Has she tried to get him out? She did. She applied for special needs parole last year. and She said she heard that he was being considered, but then she never heard
3: anything more. I'm scared that, you know, if they don't get him treatment, when he does get out on parole, is he going to get out in a wheelchair?
2: What does the state have to say about the situation? Even the Department of Corrections says they could use some clarification on how special needs parole should work and who they should consider, you know, given their need to balance both the public safety while providing some compassionate release for incapacitated inmates. Um, One thing they'd note is that there's often no place for uh, these people to go, that an inmate may have dementia or may have suffered several strokes. And they may qualify for special needs parole, but there's no safe place to release them. So the Department of Corrections is working on partnerships and communities and some long-term care facilities so they can find a place for some of these people to go ex- instead of prison. And I should note that that would cost taxpayers a lot less money in the long run as well.
0: So if even DOC
2: is unhappy about the situation, is anyone trying to do anything about it? They are on a few fronts. There's a bill that will be introduced likely at the end of this month by State Senator Pete Lee that cleans up language on who qualifies for special needs parole in the statute. It also would force DOC to be a little bit more accountable for who they're considering. Um, And completely separately, the ACLU and some private attorneys have filed a lawsuit against the Department of Corrections and the governor on behalf of some inmates for not doing enough to protect them from COVID-19 inside prisons. Where does that lawsuit stand? Well, the Department of Corrections entered into a consent decree with the lawyers, and they've agreed to furnish masks and soap to inmates and a couple of other things. Um, The governor is separately fighting his role in that lawsuit, and that part has been appealed to the state Supreme Court.
0: Allison, thank you for sharing your reporting.
2: I appreciate it, Avery.
0: CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry talking about Colorado's special needs parole law and the debate over whether it's being underutilized during the COVID-19 pandemic. When we come back, remembering an anti-war and civil rights champion from Berthoud, one of the Chicago 7. I'm Avery Lill. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News.
5: It's time to turn the page with Colorado Matters. Read a book with us, then meet the author. This time, a novel about pets. Boulder author R.L. Mazes has written Other People's Pets. Her main character is an animal empath.
4: Somebody who could literally feel what animals feel in her body.
5: Pick up Other People's Pets and join Colorado Matters Saturday, February 27th to meet the author. Free tickets at cpr.org slash turnthepage.
0: A major voice in the anti-war and civil rights movement of the late 1960s has been silenced. Rennie Davis, one of the Chicago 7, died last week of lymphoma at his home in Berthet, Colorado. He was 80 years old. Davis helped organize what was supposed to be peaceful protests against the Vietnam War during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. In fact, the demonstrations spawned days of unrest, ending in a brutal confrontation between police and the crowd that was televised worldwide. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with Davis on the 50th anniversary of that protest. They started by talking about why the events of 1968 mattered so much half a century later.
6: Well, it mattered because I, in many ways, the parallel between 1968 and 2018 is pretty stark. You know, For your listeners who weren't even born in that time, I'll just take you briefly through what happened. Uh, I was the coordinator of the largest anti-war and civil rights coalition of that era. We wanted to bring a million people to the Democratic Convention. Uh, we were all committed to nonviolence. Uh, permits were denied by the mayor of Chicago. It had sort of parallels to today's White House. I mean, things that were just fundamental, you know, cultural, constitutional rights, like the right to assemble, the right to petition your government for redress of grievances just because you were a citizen of the nation. These were all kind of tossed out, so we decided to come anyway, and we gathered in front of the Conrad Hilton and uh, you know it was it was like watching the sons and daughters of America get clubbed and beaten by Chicago police. And it wasn't just demonstrators. I mean, uh, newsmen were, were beaten bloody, and delegates from to the convention who turned out to lend moral support to us, uh, they were beaten too. Martin Luther King's organization had a mule train that came right down Michigan Avenue as a part of a poor people's campaign, and that was beaten and clubbed while the whole world was watching. More, more people watched 50 years ago than watch the first man landing on the moon.
5: And uh, you say that you had wanted to bring a million people to Chicago to the 1968 Democratic National Convention. You wanted these protests to be peaceful. And you had started to lay the groundwork for that uh, by visiting Chicago in advance and trying to get the permits you needed for such a gathering. But that was not easy in Chicago.
6: Yeah, you know, the the mayor of Chicago just dug in. I mean, we actually had the support of the of the federal government for permits. Uh, Ramsey Clark was attorney general at that time. He sent out a top assistant, uh, Roy Wilkins, to meet with me first to just you know see, make his own assessment of where our coalition was at. He was convinced that we were committed to nonviolence. And he went into the mayor's office to basically pitch the case from the from the perspective of the federal government and the Democratic Party that this was in the national interest that permits be granted, uh-huh. but uh, it was really mayor's uh, the mayor's decision not to grant permits, and that we understood coming to Chicago that. 12,000 Chicago police would be mobilized to basically clear the streets and the parks, you know, of of any demonstrators.
5: What was the first whiff you got that this event might turn violent? Did you have some sense when it began that it could go in that direction?
6: I I honestly, Ryan, had a plan A and a plan B. You know, our plan A was that we would march— uh, to the International Amphitheater nonviolently and assemble on the night of the nomination outside the convention hall, you know, as supporting our position to end the war in Vietnam. But quite honestly, we didn't have permits for that. So we gathered in a park way north side of Chicago called L- Lincoln Park. And uh, I I just tried—my plan B was just to basically prepare to have— of uh, the ability to deal with whatever might happen, although I never really fully anticipated how severe it would be. On the second night of the nom- of the convention, uh, the police came in and cleared the park. It was they they moved into the park, clubbing and beating, and then they moved through the park and actually clubbed people who just were Chicago residents sitting out on their porch watching what was happening.
5: And again, and, this, this uh, park was was not near the convention hall. You'd been granted a permit for that space, but it was so far from where the action was, where the ex- speeches exactly. were happening. And yeah. you you yourself, uh, earlier that day, Wednesday, Wednesday is sort of the crescendo of these events, but earlier that day, you, you took quite a beating yourself. Tell us about that.
6: Well, at the very last minute, the the Chicago authorities decided to grant a permit in the middle of the day. This was on wednesday, august twenty eighth, in Grant Park, which wasn't downtown, the downtown area, but but uh, next, next close to the lake. And uh, what happened was a a young teenager, Uh, went to the flagpole and lowered the flag to half mass. And with that, the police came in and, and beat people as they came and arrested him and pulled back out. Uh, our marshals immediately, you know, formed a link fence around the crowd, brought, you know, order to the situation immediately. I was on a bullhorn and, you know, reminded the police that we had a legal permit and this was our right to be here and assemble, you know. And rather than pull back, which was my suggestion for the peace of the day, they invaded again. And, and, and you ended when, up in the hospital. Uh, I, I did, you know. I I was clubbed. I was. It wasn't so much the being hit on the head, but being hit on the back over and over again. A little chain link fence in the park probably made my day. Uh, I was able to climb under that fence and just have two or three seconds to stand up and and get into the crowd before I, I passed out. I'll tell you the story about the hospital. It's one of the most amazing things. I went to a hospital to get stitches. The police knew that I had you know, been clubbed but not arrested. And they literally went door to door in the hospital, room to room, searching for me. And there were uh, employees in the hospital who could, you know, risk their entire career to do this. They had me on a little dolly, covered me with a sheet and moved me, you know, from room to room, evading the police till they could get me to an exit and I was able oh. to slip out. And so in Chicago, I was I was never actually arrested.
5: Uh, You were, I think, at a friend's house the evening of uh, continued protests that Wednesday, watching, in a way, from afar, this, again, nonviolent, that was at least the intention, protest turned even further violent.
6: It it did, you know, and, and the uh, you know, you never want to see this happen. And I i, I mean, I, I can't really say, will the ends justify the means? I would never say that. It's just that we felt that not only should, did we have the right to oppose the government's policy in a war, but we also had the right to assemble. And so... The, the courageous part, I suppose, and the controversial part for some was that we made the decision to go to Chicago without a permit, mm-hmm. and uh, that was, in my view, the, the appropriate thing to do, although it, it led to a mayhem. You may recall there was actually a presidential commission that studied who caused these riots in Chicago and it was called The Walker Report. It went right to the top of the New York Times bestseller list and it squarely placed the, the responsibility at the mayor's office. Of all the things that were ever written about me personally in the 60s, The Walker Report is my most you know, gl- glowing positive communication. <laughs> you know, it's clear that we really were sincere about wanting to have a nonviolent demonstration in Chicago, but it just was not to be allowed.
0: Rennie Davis speaking with my colleague Ryan Warner in 2018. Davis was one of the Chicago 7 who organized anti-war protests outside the Democratic National Convention in 1968. He died last week in his home in Berthet, Colorado. Netflix has produced a new movie about what happened. It's called The Trial of the Chicago 7. A lot of Colorado politicians are writing the Biden administration these days. The governor, a couple of senators, local leaders about the future of the Bureau of Land Management. The headquarters relocated over a year ago to Grand Junction. The idea of the move received bipartisan support, but the way it was done has led to a lot of second-guessing. As CPR's Caitlin Kim reports, while Colorado leaders are pushing for the headquarters to remain in the state, the Biden administration
4: may have other ideas. Robin Brown is proud of her city. The executive director of the Grand Junction Economic Partnership thinks the Bureau of Land Management should keep its headquarters in, well, Grand Junction. It's been a boon to the local economy. The jobs and their high-wage jobs and the cachet that comes with being the home of the BLM headquarters. But others take a dimmer view of the move out west. The BLM manages hundreds of millions of acres of public lands with multiple uses, from recreation to oil and gas. Scott Braden is director of the Colorado Wildlands Project. The move caused a lot of damage to the agency, Um, so I feel like it hasn't been a fully functional headquarters. According to the Interior Department, of the 328 D.C.-based BLM headquarters employees slated to move across the West, only 41 did. The rest, just over 87%, retired or found employment elsewhere. Now, some would say trimming the size of government is a good thing, but for Aaron Weiss, deputy director of the Center for Western Priorities, these numbers confirmed his worst fears.
1: The headquarters move was not a move. It was simply an evisceration of the agency.
4: The Trump administration scattered BLM headquarter jobs all across the West, in essence decentralizing the agency and losing a lot of knowledgeable people in the process. So what to do about a move as messy as the BLM? That's the question now facing the Biden administration. Steve Ellis worked for the BLM for 38 years, rising to become deputy director of operations before he retired. He has some suggestions for the new leadership team coming in.
5: Don't look in the rearview mirror, but look forward. Focus on the future.
6: Solidify what you want the BLM to be, and then organize around that.
4: Conservation groups are lining up to give the Biden administration their view on what should happen. Some think it should all move back. Others advocate a more surgical approach. Nada Culver with the National Audubon Society says the department should be cautious and not uproot people who did make the move or were hired out
1: West. Because we don't want to make the same mistakes of having some, you know, immediate edict that says, and now you shall all have to move.
4: As much as people like to criticize the D.C. bubble, it's a bubble for a reason. Government operations are centralized there, which lets senior leaders interact with other senior leaders. And it's also easier for people to come to D.C. and meet with several agencies all in one city. During a teletown hall, Republican Representative Lauren Boebert touted her work to keep BLM in her district. She has a different view of where senior leaders should be.
3: It only
2: makes sense to have the people managing hundreds of millions of acres of land located near that land and accessible to those communities.
4: She wrote a letter to the Biden administration that other House Republicans like Colorado's Ken Buck and Doug Lamborn signed on to. Aaron Weiss doesn't expect it to have much impact.
1: Lauren Boebert has zero sway with the Biden administration.
4: It's not just that she's a Republican or a freshman, but her actions, from her combative tweets to objections to the election certification, don't set her up as someone the administration could negotiate with.
1: And that's certainly not a good starting point when it comes to BLM headquarters.
4: Many expect it will be on Colorado's Democrats to make the case for Grand Junction. Senators Michael Bennett and John Hakenlooper sent a joint letter to Biden. Governor Jared Polis sent one, too, all arguing to keep a fully functioning BLM headquarters in Grand Junction. Robin Brown has organized a roundtable with the senators, the governor, and 20 municipalities to work on a game plan, a way to make the headquarters a truly viable one. I think the only thing that will save the BLM headquarters in Grand Junction is true, a true bipartisan effort from the entire Colorado delegation, a coordinated effort. That might be easier said than done, given the current personalities. The Interior Department said in a statement that new leadership will work with BLM career staff to understand the ramifications of the headquarters move and determine if any adjustments need to be made. I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Tia
0: Fuller's saxophone skills have landed her some impressive gigs. The Colorado native and Grammy nominee has performed with artists like Janelle Monet, Jay Z, Aretha Franklin. She toured as part of Beyonce's band that played at the White House, and you may already have seen her latest gig. Fuller appears in the new animated movie Soul, playing saxophone as the renowned jazz musician Dorothea Williams. <laughs> Grew up in Colorado. She's now a professor at Berklee College of Music. She joins us now from Massachusetts. Hi, Tia.
1: Hi, how are you, Avery?
0: Doing well, thanks. Soul is the latest movie from Pixar. It tackles life, death, finding purpose, and we even get a glimpse of the great beyond. But it begins as the story of an aspiring jazz musician, Joe Gardner. As a jazz musician, when you found out Pixar was making a movie about your passion and profession, what did you want to make sure they captured?
1: Well, Pete Doctor, he's the executive producer, and um, he's the one who actually came up with the idea and the theme, and it was really inspired by his son. He had a newly born son, and he was looking at his son as an infant, and he was asking himself, what is his purpose? But I find it really ironic, because this is something that I am constantly thinking about and grappling with, and then also trying to incorporate into my personal music, and um, as far as, okay, what is my purpose, what is my spark, and how am I able to share that with the world? So I feel like the entire plot of the story, is it correlates with how I feel as a musician and as an individual.
0: And we hear about that a lot in the film, is finding, finding this spark. What is your
1: spark as a musician? Is that something that you like can put your finger on even? Yeah, um, I would say my spark, well, since I was 23, I felt like I had tapped into it uh, as to what it was. And I think it's to be a light for others, whether it be um, in my family or in the classroom, performing on the stage. There's always an element of, not a teaching component, but an inspirational component that I always try to infuse into my classes. It's really a holistic approach to being an artist. It's not about how well you can sing or you can play, but it's also about your character. So all of that to me has really come back to my purpose as to being a light and really trying to serve as a selfless vessel um, for others um, so that the music and, and whatever God wants to use me for uh, will flow through me.
0: I love that. So the storyline was already in place before you got brought on board. How did you get involved with Pixar's project?
1: Yeah, so I actually got a phone call from Randall Kennedy, who is a booking agent, and they told me that Pixar was casting for the band, and he told me about the character. He was like, we're looking for a badass saxophone player who happens to be a black woman. And I was like, what? That's going to be the character? He was like, yeah, and we were wondering if you could do this record date. And then he started saying all the musicians that are going to be on the date, Linda O, the legendary Roy Haynes. Um, John Baptiste wrote all of the songs, and then Marcus Gilmore. And once he read that down, I was like, yes, I gotta make this happen. So that was the initial conversation. It was history from there. I flew out there and we literally recorded in five, six hours the next day. We barely rehearsed. It was kind of cool. I saw how how Pixar pays so fine attention attention to detail as I was setting up in the booth, I saw these three cameras. One was on my face, one was on my body, and then one was on my fingers. And he was like zeroing in. He was like, oh yeah, every single note that your character is playing is actually gonna be mimicking the exact notes you're playing. So it's not like some of the vague cartoons you just see kind of fingers floating everywhere. And I was like, this is why Pixar is Pixar.
0: as this animated character with all the very correct animated fingers and all of that.
1: It was crazy. It was, so when I got there, they had Dorothea's character. She was a black woman, but she looked a little different. Her hair was like up in a bun. She was a healthier woman. Not that I'm skinny or anything, but she's a little bit healthier. I, I thought they were going to keep that image. But then when I saw the trailers and I saw the character, I was like, oh my gosh. They changed her hair to. It was kind of like this, but my hair was shorter. And they even changed the saxophone from a tenor to an alto, which reflected all of the details on my horn, my ligature placement, my hand, even how I'm sitting on the stool. My best friend who goes to all my concerts, she was like, Tia, that looks like you, just the way that you're sitting and you're leaning over and you're adjusting your mouthpiece. I was like, that's crazy. So to see that, it's just really an honor, especially now to be able to be a part of Such a transformational platform for young people, our young black girls, little girls who are six, seven years old, who are like, oh, yeah, I know what a saxophone is. And I can play it if I want to alongside of, you know, trombone, trumpet and any other instrument. So I think this is really groundbreaking. And it's right in time with where we are in this culture
0: Let's talk a little bit about the character's personality. Dorothea Williams, she's this legendary saxophoner that Joe Gardner really looks up to. Actress Angela Bassett, she's her speaking voice. You're her musical voice on the saxophone. Dorothea is very serious about her job. She's standoffish. She's pretty intimidating. Is that what it's like to play with you?
1: (laughs) Certain days of the week, no. (laughs) Usually, No. I can kind of go there, and um, I feel like that was like an alternate personality. As you see, my personality is pretty bubbly, but I could get really serious, especially when it's dealing with the music and, and then teaching at times. A lot of my students could probably relate to my characters being more like that <laughs> until we settle into a rhythm, but um, normally I'm pretty bubbly, yeah.
0: So they made the character look more like you, but she's not exactly yeah, yeah. you.
1: I mean, some people... May beg to differ. But.
0: <laughs> so Joe Gardner, he's the main character in Soul. He's a music teacher and he dreams of being a full-time performer. A lot of musicians are torn between music education and live performance, but you've already mentioned your teaching and performance. How do you balance both of those paths where you've really succeeded?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, a lot of prayer. And I grew up in a household with um, both of my parents being educators and musicians. And I saw them balancing it. Of course, they weren't touring as much. They were pretty much more local. Seeing them really showed me and paved the way for me to say, "Hey, you can do both." And I remember they would reiterate that, "Tatia, you can do both. Go ahead and have your plan A, your plan B, and your plan C. If you want to play, that's fine. But go to school, get your degree, and then you know have your other thing of where you could potentially do both." So when I landed the Berkeley college gig, I'm really thankful because it really gives me the flexibility to do what I need to do. I have about seven or eight different hats I'm wearing. Right.
0: That's so much to juggle. Yes. Yeah. So now that you've seen the
1: finished movie, has it resonated with you? I mean, I've seen the movie three times. The first time I was just kind of like, whoa, I didn't realize how in depth they went with that idea of finding your spark. and seeing the struggle like those dark places that especially now being in this pandemic as an artist and then otherwise how we all have had to reassess ourselves look at ourselves and see is this what i'm really supposed to be doing is this my spark is this my purpose it definitely has penetrated me and every time i watch it i find something else that's um a little different it's really amazing how this movie correlates with not only my life, but also with what we are all going through right now.
0: Yeah. And in the pandemic, I mean, how has that affected your performance and your academic careers and staying busy with music?
1: Yeah. There's no performance other than virtual performances, which I've been doing a lot of. Teaching, it's been a challenge because, again, we're virtual we're using the Zoom platform, but we don't have the accessibility of being able to touch students and to all play in one space. So we've had to alter curriculums. We can't go into what we normally do or you know what we think is most successful in the classroom. We've had to really think outside of the box. So I've even reformulated parts of my classes to where we speak about me sharing with them some of my experiences, artistic development, and how to really build their spirit, those things outside of the music that they can lean on and utilize as tools. Just, you know, trying to stay uh, inspired and motivated.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's the big one. Well, yeah, I have loved talking with you. Thank you so much for making time.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Avery.
0: Thea Fuller from Colorado is a music educator at Berkeley College of Music and the Sax Loft. She plays saxophone as Dorothea Williams in the new Pixar film Soul. That's Colorado Matters for today, thanks to the team that gives this show its spark.
5: Carl Bielek
4: Ali Bugner Andrea Dukakis
5: Michelle Fulcher Matt hers Michael Hughes
4: Carla Jimenez
5: Pedro Lumbrano,
4: Alexandra McMahon Patrice Mondragon
5: Shane Rumsey Ryan Warner.
0: And I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to Daniel Mesher and Megan Verlee. This is CPR News.